Welcome to Adopting Zero Trust, an independent podcast that dives into the world of zero trust and tells the story of people who are adopting it. Throughout our series, we'll investigate why zero trust is becoming a critical concept for cybersecurity. Our hosts, Elliot Volkman and Neil Dennis, will have transparent and open conversations with the people driving modern security approaches forward while leaving vendor hype behind. It's time to remove implicit trust and buzzwords and get to the root of the movement. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Adopting Zero Trust, or AZT. Today, we're going to be covering an area which I don't believe we've actually covered in any aspect. I think we've talked to someone in the biz dev side that sort of has similar vein, but MSPs or MSSPs, managed security or managed service, security services providers, however you want to position it, they have probably the most visibility into any other organization in our space because they are frankly chatting with organizations of all different sizes and many different pain points. So today, uh, fortunately, we have someone who leads up the security efforts for one of such said organizations. JR, I'm going to hand that off to you to give a proper introduction, and then we'll kind of just jump into it. Well, thanks, Elliot. Thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it. Happy to be here. It's such an important topic. And by the way, confusing topic. So I'm glad that AZT is here to you know, advocate for some of the principles in being successful at this. As you mentioned, I'm J.R. Cunningham. I'm the Chief Security Officer at Newspire. We are a managed security services provider. That's all we do. And so we don't do a lot of the other IT stuff like keyboards and mice. We focus specifically on security. We serve some of the largest customers largest industries on earth and we serve a wide variety of industries our kind of specialty in our background is really the automotive industry and the supply chain around the automotive industry so we got our start about 23 years ago as an mssb specifically focused on that now we do a lot in aerospace retail finance sectors so we do see a lot of different stuff from a lot of different industries. I'm also responsible for our consulting and our strategy programs at Newspire. So, you know, my team does a lot of the legwork on working with customers to figure out what kind of problems are they trying to solve and how can we help? And, you know, what are the things that are concerning to them? So really happy to share whatever I can. Obviously, you know, you have a lot of listeners that are going to be interested in, you know, the topic at large. So hopefully I can contribute. Oh, I'm certain of that. And I think there's a couple of different things here that I'd love to chat about. So hopefully I don't go too around the rabbit hole. But with your, I guess, bread and butter being in the auto industry, I love just some visibility. And I know this kind of a sidetrack, and then we'll kind of go into the regular AZT kind of questions. But you know, with cars essentially becoming software today, how do you see that impacting organizations and their brands from a security perspective? Because obviously, they're going to be more connected, you know, if they're doing autopilot or self driving and some of these other aspects, security is going to be absolutely critical compared to computer systems of today. You know, what kind of visibility do you have into, you know, what your customers are looking at? We are living in the most profound change in the automotive industry since Henry Ford. Uh, we are really seeing some innovation that requires not just tip of the spear type innovation in security, but also outside of the box thinking with regards to just IT infrastructure in general. If you think about all of the parts of a vehicle that require some sort of cybersecurity, it's way above and beyond what we traditionally used to think of as, you know, a car might have a small computer in it to as an engine control unit. And, you know, you have the entertainment center, you know, with your radio and maybe a touch screen. If you look at what's happening today, vehicular autonomy, 
over-the-air update, navigation, you know, with within vehicle autonomy, even systems have radar and LIDAR on board. You have to have computers to control those systems. And then even stuff outside of the automobile that, that we have to think about securing. An example would be a charging station. You know, a charging station, if you think about it, it has to talk to the car. It has to talk mm -hmm. to the electric company. They accept payment. So it's a credit card processing device. It has to understand what the weather is because charge rates are temperature dependent. And so, you know, there's connectivity there to, to what's happening, you know, with the external environment, sensors on board, all this kind of stuff. So the security ramifications of the innovation that are happening in the automotive industry is amazing. And by the way, we're not just talking about a website getting defaced or something like that. We're talking about if we don't do our jobs right, you know, the accidents mm -hmm. could happen. People could be injured or killed. So it's it's an entirely different world than what it used to be in that industry. And there's an expectation, by the way, that, you know, the automakers are essentially driving a lot of this innovation, asking the questions of what's possible. They're expecting the IT and cybersecurity communities to step up and innovate as well and answer the questions, how do we do a better job than we have in the past with securing things? When we talk about the internet of things, this is the ultimate thing. You know, we're talking about mm -hmm. the car that people get into and you know, every day. So it's a fascinating time to be connected to the automotive industry in any. Yeah. And I think this actually directly ties into a conversation that Neil and I had recently had. I honestly can't remember which guest it was around, but Neil had basically referenced that they brought in, I think, a Tesla to DEF CON and just let people go at it and to see what they can do to kind of breach in. And his response was, I guess, the I'll call it a device because it's more than a car at that point. They completely bricked it, totally unusable. They'll have to re, you know, flash and, you know, put the software back on from like factory reset kind of situation. And I guess for the event that he is coming up for a Texas cyber event, he's going to rent a Tesla, do a similar act exercise. So <laughs> good luck to Neil on that. I don't have, know if I him, would put. <laughs> yeah. Have him get the insurance policy, will you, on the rental? Right. Yeah. I don't even know if insurance policies would cover software destruction to that extent, but yeah, I think that's pretty interesting. Obviously, you know, with that in mind, they're going to have to do more pen testing, start adhering to a lot of these other compliance and regulation elements. So they're also, you know, taking in a lot more risk. So I'm sure they're obviously starting to be a lot more proactive. They have to treat it like a hardware, internet of things, software manufacturer. There's just so much more that these companies are taking on. So, you know, even with a push for moving to like e, you know, electric devices in the next two years, five years, that's a lot to take on for a company. You know, it's very interesting. The automotive industry has come a long way and not just the auto industry, but a lot of industries have come a long way in embracing the cybersecurity community when it comes to managing vulnerabilities and threats to you know their devices. I remember Andy Greenberg wrote a fantastic article in Wired magazine years ago about uh, Charlie Miller and Chris Vilsack hacking into a Jeep using the over-the-air 4G kind of. And back in those days when they did that, you know, it was a proof of concept for them. But the the whole world was generally very much kind of arms folded when cybersecurity practitioners would say hey, I think I found something. It was very much a, you had to kind of really push on manufacturers, not just of automobiles, but of electronic devices, wireless access points, everything to get them to pay attention to vulnerabilities. Today, if you look at how industry, be it financial services or automotive or retail, 
looks at the problem. They welcome the good folks, you know, the cybersecurity practitioners mm -hmm. to attempt to compromise these systems so they can fix them better us than the bad guys, because, you know, we don't have a propensity for stealing money or killing people. Right. And so, you know, they're very interested in, in having the cybersecurity community contribute to the discovery of vulnerabilities and the mitigation of them. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure you're familiar with auto ISAC and some of the other ISACs out there who are helping to create that collective defense. So fortunately, there are organizations that are helping connect people, even if the brands are technically competitors when it comes to cybersecurity, that's kind of out the window. Any threat intelligence that that's one right. can share to the others. Yeah, that's right. The bad Very guys cool. are the real competition in cyberspace. Yeah, without a doubt. There's no reason to ever, you know, sling that kind of competition when it comes to protecting one another. So I love right. that aspect of our space. There's just no necessary competition in that regards. So that being said, I'd love to kind of redirect us back towards some of our basic AZT related activity. I have a pretty good assumption that most people that listen to our podcast are very well acquainted what managed security services providers do, but in the event that they don't, maybe you can just give like an elevator pitch on where you come in and how you support organizations. Sure. If you think about what an organization needs to do from a security perspective, there the world of the possible is, let's call it 200 things you could do in security, right? You know, everything from authentication to vulnerability management to policies and governance and identity and disaster recovery, all of those things. And, and very few organizations have the capability to do all of those things. And so, you know, the natural question is, okay, where do I need to go to, you know, to get some of that capability? And then also, you know, there's the 24-7 of nature, 24-7 nature of security now. The days of the security and IT teams walking out the door on Friday, turning the lights off and coming back on Monday to see what happened are over. So the expectation is that organizations have, you know, 24-7, 365 security capability. That's where managed security services firms like Newspire come into play, where, you know, we take care of things like endpoint detection and response, managed detection response, monitoring SIM for the environment, you know, in a 24 by 7, 365, always on kind of capacity, um, managed vulnerability services, helping clients with the scanning and identification of vulnerabilities in their environment. Uh, things like managing critical infrastructure like firewalls and wireless devices, you know, things of, of this nature. So a managed security services provider really is designed to be the security team for an organization that either doesn't have one, doesn't have one that operates 24-7, 365, or has one but has additional capabilities that they need that they've got to go outside and ask someone else to do for them. Most commonly, you'll see managed security services firms handling some of the really complex technology that, that an organization might not want to build the internal capability around. SIM is a great example. You know, the monitoring technologies, creating rules, event correlation, matching those with threats, and then, of course, the threat intelligence piece that goes along with that is something that most organizations have to really make an informed decision on. Am I going to build that capability internally or is that something that I'm going to you know, ask someone else to do? And that's where we really come to, to bear. Yeah. And I don't want to give a sales pitch in your direction by any sure. means, but yeah. so a life or what feels like a lifetime ago, I essentially worked for an MSP. We focused on social engineering. So, you know, every organization brand, the bigger you get, the more phishing lures they get and all that. Just the sheer amount of volume that you get for the internal stock 
would be impossible for most organizations to handle. So I totally get the need and the auxiliary support for an organization like that. And then mid-market organizations in particular, you know, do they have thousands and thousands of dollars to support next-gen XDRs or same, however you want to pronounce it, the technology that you all probably have and you all have staff to specifically support, it's not really easy or cost-effective necessarily for most organizations. Yeah, you know, Elliot, kind of what you're speaking to here also relates to the talent shortage. Organizations have to fight really hard to attract and retain the talent to manage, you know, systems that are very complex and stay on top of the cybersecurity landscape. And that's a whole lot more of an expensive proposition than it once was. And so that's another element where an MSP or an MSSP, this is true in IT as well, have become much more important to an organization in, you know, bringing modern current capability to bear for an organization. It's hard to hire people, especially if they're the only person who's going to do that role in a company. You know, that's not a particularly often attractive thing for a cybersecurity practitioner to go do. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it's the talent shortage plays a role in all of this as well. I want to say some of our biggest clients back in the day, they had so many phishing lures that a security practitioner would just, you know, their mind would melt. Most of them were obviously (laughs) benign. They're reported by internal staff. But, you know, the folks that, you know, have the experience, they want to threat hunt. They want to, you know, pen test and be able to do all the things that actually help keep companies secure in a proactive state versus more of a reactive and constantly looking at really bad spam with spelling errors and stuff like that. So, yeah, more power to y'all for basically able to take the brunt of it. And I think that transitions to, you know, the core of what we're out here to talk about, which is adopting zero trust. So uh, obviously it's not necessarily a new term. And in past episodes, how we've essentially come is every single episode, there's like a new keyword that we focus on around. So there's the culture of it and how it impacts the organization or zero trust as a philosophy. But I think even from, you know, the support side, uh, you all are the champions, the coaches, even if zero trust is bullshit, which I'm not saying it is. We're not here to pass that. We're just here to have those conversations. I can't imagine how many organizations come to you and say, I want zero trust, zero trust solution. We know that it's not right. technology in itself, but what does right. that look like You know, from day one when a company says the magic keyword zero trust, you know, what does that conversation look like? Elliot, it's one of those terms that's extremely ambiguous. It's like when a customer comes to us and says, help me with cloud security or help me with data protection. And so really the first thing that we have to do is unpack what problem is it they're trying to solve. And that helps us get to the heart of what is a solution? What are the technologies and processes that they need to adopt in order to solve that particular problem? To some organizations, they're trying to solve a problem of maybe secure remote work. You know, we saw that a lot during COVID where organizations had built this massive infrastructure to protect their employees on-prem. And then they sent everybody home and were asking, okay, how do we protect these, you know, these folks? And, and the obvious answer was, hey, let's adopt zero trust. And so often folks would come to us with the term and, you know, the, the idea would be, okay, well, what is it we're actually trying to solve for it? And then unpacking that. What we find is that different organizations, even within the same industry, tend to have different views on what zero trust means. It kind of depends upon what the security and IT teams have been reading and absorbing in the past. And so we really have to get to that question. What is What problem is it they're trying to solve? And what we often see is they don't actually have aspirations of the mythical state of zero trust, 
they actually are trying mm-hmm. to just move their demarcation of trust around. And by that, what I mean is if you think, of, to use the moat and castle analogy, you know, when we lived in a world of everything was on-prem, you had the moat around the castle, you had perimeter firewalls, you had, you know, really robust perimeter security, VPNs, you had all this infrastructure that was designed to essentially demark trust at the network layer and say, if you're not on my network, I don't trust you, you're bad. Well, the moat essentially dried up, you know, and we have, you know, the whole castle thing doesn't work for, you know, the application world. It doesn't work for cloud. It doesn't work for curbside pickup. It doesn't work for, you know, modern business. And so essentially what we've done is we've moved the demarcation line, the moat of trust away Mm -hmm. from the network and kind of up the stack, if you will, to where now we need to start thinking about which applications do we trust or not trust, which, you know, which platforms do we trust or not trust? Which identities do we trust or not trust? You know, what does the people side of the equation need to look like? And that's really the journey to zero trust is that movement of the, the, the moat, if you will, to make it as small of a moat as possible, but still protect the castle and keep the business safe. So we spend a lot of time with our clients trying to unpack what is it you're really trying to do when you're thinking about zero trust? Yeah, I love that. That is the sole purpose really of this podcast is to have these conversations because I have a marketing background. I fully admit to the pain that can be put out into the world. Fortunately, an organization that I you know spend most of my time with, we make sure that it's not using buzzwords like that. So it, it's just, it's so prevalent that when they pitch CISOs and executives and security folks in the buyer committee, I think they're unnecessarily creating a lot of confusion. And I think it's okay to kind of maybe hook them a little bit with some shiny object and say, yeah, we're going to help you do this. But there is no such thing as a zero trust solution. And I love that you're able to capture that and help kind of coach them through that. And I think that's one of the most critical areas that organizations like you all support is being really like a trusted partner. And, you know, there's just not a lot of that in the security space, especially the security technology space where it's very transactional in nature. Oh, you're so right, Elliot. This is this particular area is one where the product companies really haven't been particularly helpful here because so many of the product companies have said, we're the zero trust company. And you know, you have to really unpack that as a as an MSSP or a consulting organization, you know, you really have to help a customer that's trying to solve a very specific problem or a group of problems you know, unpack some of that and ask the question, okay, does this product really work for you or not? I know the vendor said it does because they say they're the zero trust company and that's everywhere, you know, not picking on a Mm -hmm. particular product at all. It's just pervasive in the industry. It's a new trend emerges. It kind of reminds me back of like, you know, 2008, 2009, 2010, secure mobility was all the rage and everyone was a secure mobility company, you know, and the question was, well, what does that mean? What does secure mobility actually, actually entail? And so, yeah, you're right. There's a lot of noise in the industry with the this particular topic and others like cloud security. I know for our repeat listeners, you probably hear me say, Neil and myself say that absolutely every time, but I think that's justifiable because that's what you'll see when you Google search zero trust, you're going to be like, oh, technology, technology instead. And this is my next question to you is, you know, if you are interested in actually trying to understand what zero trust is, you know, do you have a particular resource that you point people towards? Obviously we've got like NIST and CISA and a few other things, but you know, those are very dry and hard to understand. So where does your organization sort of grasp what that is and help uh, disseminate, you know, what the true problems are related to it? Yeah, it's a great question, Elliot. And I think it all begins with 
what does the business do and what are the threats that are relevant to that business and what are the capabilities that we have to deal with those threats? Really a simple risk equation, right? You know, who are the bad guys? Why are they trying to, or how are they trying to get at us? And what do we have in place to, to stop that from happening? And then you kind of start to back into some of the other terms like zero trust. You know, it, it, it becomes a function of what is it I need to do? The frameworks are great. You know, some of them that you mentioned, we have a lot of customers who run their entire security programs off of like the SIS 18, or maybe they have a regulatory requirement like PCI and they, you know, they put a lot of work into, you know, the PCI part of the equation. So, you know, that those are areas where we certainly leverage those control frameworks. But at the end of the day, it really comes down to, you know, how does this business operate? And by the way, you'd be surprised at how many security people aren't really in tune with some of the fundamentals of what is really important from a cyber perspective about a business. And, you know, to use the manufacturing example, because we talked about it earlier, in the cybersecurity profession, we tend to be wired around protecting confidentiality. You know, we talk a lot about encryption. We talk a lot about authentication and authorization. You know, a lot of ink gets spilled in our industry around that. But in the manufacturing space, really availability is far more important for most manufacturers and confidentiality. If your conveyor belt isn't running or your widget maker isn't stamping out widgets, your business is in real trouble. And so, you know, we often have to help cybersecurity practitioners unpack what's important to the business from a cyber perspective. Then we, you know, we unpack the threat space and start to, to look at, okay, you know, how not just who are the bad guys, but how are they attempting to hurt that thing that we just identified is really important to you. And in the case of to, to extend the manufacturing example, you know, we have to think about things like ransomware. We have to think about things like industrial control systems and IoT security that are extremely relevant to that particular business. Then we start to get into Okay, what does it mean to be zero trust in this environment? What technology controls do we have to have in place, you know, that make it really hard for this attack to be successful? Where does that fit in the regulatory governance frameworks like NIST or ISO or, you know, any of the regulations that an organization has to follow? And so that's really the, you know, it's not so much a, a singular resource, if you will, to go look at, okay, this is what I need to do to get smart in this area. It's more about just unpacking the elephant a little bit and determining, okay, you know, what are the little things that I need to understand in order to see the big picture of, you know, how to protect this organization? Interesting. Yeah. To me, it kind of sounds like the basics of, you know, just doing a risk assessment, even identifying where your biggest gaps are, prioritizing them, and then seeing if they're, I guess on paper is a zero trust principle or concept that you can kind of wrap around that. Not necessarily just attacking it with a piece of technology because obviously you need right. processes and inventory everything first. But yeah, it honestly sounds like uh, something as basic as a risk assessment and risk management program and prioritizing from there. It's very common for us, and I'm sure Elliot, you've heard this throughout the years as well. It's common for us to be approached with, hey, I have this technology I want to implement. And when you start to unpack a little bit about, okay, why do you want to implement that technology? What problem are you trying to solve? Usually a singular piece of technology won't solve a complex problem. Sometimes it does, but very rarely. Usually solving a problem, and this is especially true in the world of the zero trust journey, is a little bit of governance and you know risk management and acceptance of certain things that maybe we can't do anything about. It's a little bit of process and standards in order to make sure that we're consistently doing the right thing. It's the technology, of course. 
And then it's the, you know, the metric side of it, making sure that we're measuring and understanding is this technology that I deployed along with those processes and the governance that I put in place, are they doing the right things to protect the organization and keep me safe, you know, from the threat that I was really concerned about? So yeah, you're right. And the script, essentially that risk assessment component of it is a little bit of a flip of the script. I'm, a, I'm an old school cybersecurity person. We started off with everything could be solved with technology. You know, if it has a light that blinks, it'll fix the problem. Don't worry about it. I've got antivirus. I've got firewalls. We're good. And wow, has the world changed? You know, that to that. it's just not the case anymore. And I think that's the other aspect of this. And I know we're sort of preaching to the choir because our general audience are security folks who live and breathe this every day. But I guess we we do also have the vendors that like to fall into our inbox and say, hey, we'll give you money for shout outs and stuff like that. But for the rest of those folks that are listening, I think that's a critical aspect for like how they bring these conversations to organizations. So for larger organizations, they already understand that they have, you know, profound and mature risk management programs. They grasp that for those mid-market organizations who are getting approached by technology vendors and sort of being coached towards their product, I think it's always important to just reiterate you know, the need for processes and making sure you have the people to support that technology and if it can actually support it. We tell our customers all the time, it, you should define the problem that you're trying to solve and then expect us to answer how we'll solve for it as opposed to us defining the problem for you and then, you know, obviously presenting a solution that perfectly fits the problem. Imagine that, right? You know, so it, it definitely, it definitely works best when an organization has some sort of an idea. And by the way, sometimes the answer is, I don't know. That's how, you know, we can help any, you know, good cybersecurity consulting organization, you know, can help an organization answer that question. What problem am I really trying to solve here? We always get a little nervous when the problem is defined by, you know, it's a, it's the whole, don't ask the barber if you need a haircut, you know, kind of a, a thing. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great example, especially. That's why I like to wear my hat. Yeah, so right. <laughs> have to deal with that conversation. Yeah. Yeah, I don't uh, have to have that conversation with the barber. I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm heading in that direction too. I feel that. So I know a few weeks ago that you all had put out, I don't know if it's quarterly that you do it, but you put out like your threat reports. I'm curious. Right. Uh, and I know this is totally a redirection of conversation. So, but curious, what, what elements have you all seen as an increase in threats, especially with, you know, obviously the past few years moving to remote, has there been any impact on that? And obviously we can kind of tie that back to zero trust as well. Yeah, it's really fascinating to have the vantage point. This is actually one of my favorite parts about working with an MSSP. You, the vantage point of seeing how the bad guys are operating across a wide variety of industries and who those threat actors are, it's very interesting. Well, we tend to think of the hacker space as, you know, the, the kid in the basement, you know, that you slide a pizza to every, you know, once a week and, you know, that kind of thing, right? And that's not it at all, right? These are very sophisticated nation state actors, criminal organizations uh, that are extremely well funded, often by their own governments or at arm's length funded by their own governments. And they usually have very specific motivations and desires. You know, we kind of know, you know, that the Russians and the Eastern Europeans are really after, you know, money and the financial services organizations and the Chinese are after intellectual property, and, you know, secrets and defense information, things like mm -hmm. that. And where it gets interesting is when organizations, and there are a great number of them, meet the crux of the interest of all of those different bad guys. You know, it's not uncommon for a supplier to have a connection to the aerospace industry and a connection to the retail industry and a connection to the financial services industry. We see that a lot with 
you know, the in manufacturers that make electronics or any kind of widget that would be interesting to those various industries. And so, you know, the threat actors do tend to, you know, be very motivated by a, a common purpose, if you will. You know, I some of the examples I, you know, I just I just threw out there. So it's interesting to watch how they all operate. And by the way, they might be operating together and not realize it to put a company at risk, right? And so we see a lot of that. Um, the other thing that we see is, and this kind of pops up in the threat report, there certainly is an emergence of the bad guys using older vulnerabilities. You know, it used to be the bad guys were all focused on zero-day vulnerabilities and the brand new stuff that there weren't defenses around yet. And I, I think, you know, the bad guys, especially that second tier of bad guys, maybe the ones who aren't funded by a government, but are a sophisticated criminal enterprise that has you know, tools and the resources to pull off an attack, they've realized that it's a lot cheaper to, instead of developing your own zero-day vulnerability or zero-day attack, to go after some of the more well-known vulnerabilities that are likely to have not been patched. Uh, and so, you know, there certainly is that. I'll say this, in looking at the threat landscape and looking at TTPs, you know, the techniques, tactics, procedures mm-hmm. that the bad guys use, it's really interesting how many of those go all the way back to basics, fundamentals, vulnerability and patch management, multi-factor authentication, strong passwords, you know, the stuff that is not particularly glamorous. And by the way, when it comes to, you know, adopting zero trust, often the stuff that's just assumed, you know, that isn't really considered how critical that stuff is to keeping the bad guys from being successful. The way that we keep talking about adopting zero trust in general, it's more of a repackaging of everything that has been building up to this point. So 10 years ago, I think it was a little more abstract. Today, obviously, it's very fractured. But the way that, you know, again, I lived in that world as well. So I had some visibility and had fun analyzing data. But, you know, a lot of what we saw were threat actors taking advantage of low hanging fruit, you know, not right. people not patching things. People were reusing passwords, the account gets popped and, you know, they get hit again, elements like that. So, you know, it, it doesn't even need zero trust, which is removing implicit trust. It's like the most basic core elements, even beyond, you know, multi-factor. Will that help secure them? Absolutely. But not reusing a password, not even right. one-on-one. I don't know how to explain that. So right. I, I totally get that. We see this conversation often with encryption where organizations want to adopt, you know, better and better encryption. And when we start asking about their authentication scheme, they're using passwords, they're not using MFA, they don't have privileged access management. You know, they have privileged users that have the same account as their daily driver account. And, you know, we have to kind of, you know, pull the cable and stop the train a little bit and say, hey, you know, you can't have good encryption without great authentication. It's not possible. And the same is true in anything regarding zero trust, we can't move that demarcation of trust around if, you know, we haven't shored up the fundamentals. Endpoint detection response is another great example of, you know, I can't really move very far down that zero trust journey if, you know, I'm not doing the right things on the endpoint. And so, you know, there's there's a lot of that part of the conversation that happens too. And again, a lot of this is just, you know, back to fundamentals and doing the, you know, the basic right things for hygiene that enables the freedom to go do some of the other more out there things and, and, you know, more freedom and liberty in digital, if you will, comes Mm -hmm. from, you know, having some of those fundamentals short. I totally agree with that. And I think the other element is, you know, beyond the basics and obviously implementing multi-factor, it's probably not this year. I feel like I've seen the hype die down 
there's been a few less headlines around ransomware attacks. I think it's more like just straight up breaches, which probably comes through phishing and other social engineering. But I'm curious, you know, in your mind, have you seen, and it doesn't have to be a technological element, but have you seen a zero trust related solution towards ransomware, which again, I realize is hopefully the hype is down and hopefully the threat actor is there, you know, navigating towards other techniques. But I'm just kind of curious based on that, because I, I know that's still always a flagged item, especially in the report you all put up. Yeah, for sure. Ransomware and DDoS continue to be the number one and number two things that our clients ask us about as far as concerns mm -hmm. that they have for their business. So um, you know, that's not going away anytime soon. I think the trend with regards to ransomware, which is very appropriate in a zero trust conversation, is the idea of stopping ransomware as early in the kill chain as possible. Mm -hmm. You know, we when ransomware first really became a thing, we were really focused on you know, detection response. And I think part of that, if you think about it, was a pendulum swing because a decade or so ago, maybe even a little bit longer than that, we focused all our energy on prevention, right? We had antivirus that had lists of known viruses floating around on the computer. And every once mm -hmm. in a while, a new vulnerability would emerge, a new threat would emerge that the antivirus didn't have in the list and something bad would happen. And we'd say, hey, the prevention failed and we've got to focus on detection and response. And so the industry pendulum swung toward your detection, quick detection, quick response. And I think what's happening now is the pendulum is starting to swing back the other way. And that if I can stop that ransomware very early on in the kill chain, either at the delivery of the phishing link or the attempted detonation of the payload or stopping the lateral movement, the earlier I can stop that threat from occurring in the, the life cycle of the threat, the cheaper it is to mitigate, the less likelihood of there being serious damage, you know, and the more effective I'm likely to be at containing something that could threaten the entire enterprise. And that's, you know, that really goes hand in hand with this idea of zero trust in that I'm not going to let the creepy crawly get in and infect my whole network before I try and stop it or do anything about it. I'm going to try and, and, and zap it as early as I can in its life cycle. So that's certainly a trend that we see. You know, I have to give kudos to a lot of the EDR companies who have really embraced the idea of we've got to look for not just things that we know about, but we've got to look for anomalous behavior or things that are happening on a machine that, you know, give us pause or changes in executables and things that are running on the device and go, hey, something's not right here. And maybe it's okay to error sometimes on the side of, I'm going to stop this thing from happening and maybe I'm going to disrupt the operation of that device as opposed to, you know, the old school way of thinking was we don't want to get in the way of anybody doing their job. We don't want to interrupt anybody's email or web surfing and then bad stuff happens, right? So mm -hmm. you know, th that's been a positive change in our, in our industry, I think. Very interesting. And I know considering that you have a vast collection of customers and clients, you all probably have greater visibility into any of that kind of anomalous situation that might flag because as a single entity, a single brand, or even with subsidiaries, you have a narrow view. You see what you see, unless you have a threat intelligence platform, even with feeds, it, you know, you, you just don't get that kind of accessibility and viewpoint. So obviously removing implicit trust and lateral movement, that makes sense to me. I'm curious, do you all use, I guess, information internally against client to client to help prevent that and kind of gain visibility into that footprint? Oh, it's a it's an expectation of our business and our industry that we'll do mm -hmm. that. For instance, if we see an attack emerging in the healthcare space and, and we figure out, okay, here's a way to, to thwart that attack, 
we need to immediately propagate that to our other healthcare customers and say, hey, we just saw something and it was an attempt against, you know, client, you know, patient zero, if you will, right? And, you mm-hmm. know, here's the, the mitigation to that. So I, absolutely. And that's one of the benefits, you know, of being an MSSP is that we're able to peer across industries and then within each industry, peer across customers and answer some questions around, you know, what is this threat actually trying to do? And is it something that, you know, we need to be worried about for a particular type of customer? A great example of this would be in the healthcare space, attacks against providers and attacks against payers um, tend to be wildly different types of attacks. Both of those organizations are regulated by HIPAA, so they have the same fundamental compliance requirements. They're putting the same checks in the boxes for their security programs, but providers are really worried about medical devices and ransomware shutting down parts of their you know, their operation, whereas on the payer side of the equation, they're more like a financial services, you know, entity. And so that's an example of as an MSSP, we might have the vantage point of being able to see, okay, even within peering within a particular industry, what sub verticals in that industry are the bad guys really going after? And it's a critical part of what an organization should expect out of an MSSP is the ability to. to... Awesome. All right. So it looks like Neil slipped in here. Would it be a little too preemptive to talk about just the general transition of the impact of MSSPs versus at home grown spun security relative to getting things done. Maybe that's still. Yeah, it's a, Neil, it's a really hot topic. As a matter of fact, we, we just did a study and we did a webinar on the study and we're actually continuing to do some work around the study on what parts of a security program is an organization most likely to outsource? What problems are folks trying to solve? And what we're finding is really multifold. One, organizations have, you know, we obviously know about the talent shortage and all of the issues that, that come with that. So organizations are viewing their security practitioners that, that they have internally as a much more precious entity than they once did. So they're, on one hand, they're looking to outsource a lot of the commoditized stuff that, that's more, if you think about it, kind of the grunt work of security, vulnerability scanning and patch management, endpoint detection and response, you manage an EDR platform, managing SIM and the whole detection and response side of the equation. And then on the other hand of the equation, we have all this new stuff coming out that organizations aren't equipped to deal with, you know, cloud configuration management, cloud security posture monitoring, managing a remote workforce in a unique way, business transformation where, you know, apps are going more mobile and digital and, you know, than they have before. And so there are application security requirements an organization might not be comfortable with. So what we see is both ends of the spectrum being prime candidates for outsourcing the commoditized stuff. That's the grunt work, the stuff you have to do. And then the really far out there stuff that it's really hard to grow internal talent for and find folks that can do that for you. Where we see organizations recognizing they need to continue to have internal capability, number one, around security governance and knowing the business. No MSSP is going to understand your business the way that you do. And so um, having the governance and the risk side of the equation internal is a great thing, as well as a lot of the security architecture and that connectivity between security and IT is really important to not outsource. You know, IT is trying to move the business in a, in a fast way. Business is moving faster than it ever has. And so, you know, having a security function internally that's really connected with the business and also connect as that liaison to a third party like an MSSP to say, hey, here's a new problem that's emerging for me. Here's what I'm looking to solve for. Can you help me? That's capability that an organization almost always wants to have internally in order to be successful. Yeah, definitely. 
Yeah, I think that's kind of a fun thing to think about. I personally see a couple of different aspects, like what you mentioned, new tech. Sometimes it's nice just to bring in that consultative or even that contractor status to help with the new tech. Third, you or second, you mentioned like the labor issues and stuff like that. I have my own personal opinions on how to go down that rabbit hole, whether it exists or not. But regardless, it does exist for some reason or another, right? Um, so supplemental staff. So what I've seen in the past, I've seen a lot of people take and just do basic supplemental post post office hour stuff, right? So they're not a full 24-7 service provider, right. but they get them the after hours piece. So that way, you know, the mundane things are still getting taken care of, or they leverage them exclusively for a tier one response effort, right? And then let the team focus on those tier two, three, more research in depth type things. And then the last third part of that, like you mentioned, the tech piece as a whole, where, you know, you want to make sure that the core competency of what goes on in your tech stack is still you and not necessarily that contract, right. of course, right? So I think in the format of zero trust, uh, you know, we've talked about this on previous discussions, you know, the, there's a whole new world out there of technology that's zero trust, right? There's a lot of people wanting to sell you something that is or isn't, that's repackaged, may not be repackaged, may be net new, may not be net new, but the concept is there. And so I think I have yet personally to see a service provider, MSSP type, promote zero trust in the sense, right? I, I imagine they're there. I don't know if y'all have seen one, but have you seen that from a, a, a service approach to say, hey, look at us, we're zero trust. We're not just going to come and help you build it, but we are a MSSP that focuses on monitoring zero trust stack as a whole kind of thing. Yeah, Elliot and I kind of talked about this earlier, where really it's about unpacking the problem for the customer. What problem is it you're trying to solve? And often they'll come to us and say, I need help with zero trust. And we don't necessarily know where they got that term from. Did it come from a technology provider who's trying to say, we're the zero trust company? Or, you know, did it come from, you know, some sort of reading somewhere about the concept in general? So we really start with what problem is it we're trying to solve and how do we go with you on the journey towards zero trust? You know, what do things look like for you today? What are your capabilities? And, you know, how does a business operate? What are the threats that are relevant? And so, you know, I, I think we we tend to try to not define the problem for our customers and say, we're the zero trust managed security services provider. What we do is work with the client to understand, okay, what problems what are the acute problems you're trying to solve for your business? And then, you know, what technologies and processes and governance and operations capability do we need to, to deploy in order to make sure that we get you there to solve that problem? And by the way, when you get to the end state, kind of looks like zero trust, right? You know, it's just the natural evolution of all this. So we tend to back into zero trust with our clients more than kind of starting with zero trust as a conversation up front and working backwards from there. And you're right, Neil, you know, very few service providers want to get out there and talk about zero trust as a pure concept. And I think in part, Nelly and I talked about this a little bit earlier, in part that's driven by the product companies over the course of the last half a decade have really kind of tried to define what zero trust means. And so what we find is we have to undo a lot of that, right? We've got to unpack the, you know, no, there's no single box you can plug in that makes you a, you know, a zero trust organization. And so, you know, I think that's why a lot of us have been really shy about, you know, going to the market with the term as service providers. Yeah. I think that's kind of a wonderful thematic that we've gotten out of this so far is everybody we've had on agrees that zero trust is not just a plug and play every one-stop shop from anyone. Now we haven't really talked to any of the legit vendor 
providers, right? The technology stack, right? We've talked to people who actually are doing something here. So when we get there, it'd be fun to see from a vendor's perspective that promotes Zero Trust as their tool stack, what they consider it to be. But that being said, it's nice to see thematically the consistency of everyone who's actually doing it says, no, you're not going to get it from just me. You're not going to get it from just them. You may already have some of it, may already not have some of it. This is a multi tier effort, a multi-technology effort, and we just got to find the right ways to make all these other things come together. So that's good to see, once again, thematically that it's still there. So thinking on this a little bit more, the one thing that I think that you mentioned that that is a little slightly different than some of the other approaches, you know, you talk about backing them into the zero trust piece, which I think is a great approach. I think, you know, if we think of zero trust as a security goal mark, you know, the where we want to be, instead of just leveraging it as a term to promote engagement. Right. You know, I think it's a good approach. There's a lot of people who would come in and just say, hey, I've defined zero trust. Here's the standards of zero trust. And now we're going to go from that term down, down the stream. And I think you probably, you know, there's pros and cons to either side of that. I, I think, you know, if you start with the definition and you work your way backwards through that definition, yeah, you're probably still going to get to the same piece, but I think you're get a little more fixated on kind of that marketing fluff that goes with it. But in your perspective, you know, you have your own grounded principles of what it means to do these security elements that just happen to coincide with the concept of getting to zero trust. And I think maybe from your perspective, probably you go from that side towards the zero trust mentality with what you know works well. And then you can use the concept of zero trust to back in to make sure that you've checked the right bells and whistles, you know, down the line, probably. Does that sound kind of accurate from a deployment perspective? That's absolutely right. It's a journey. It really is. It's like answering the question, when will I be, you know, and, you know, it really is a journey that we have to go, you know, down the path together. And the fascinating thing, and one of the things I think that makes our profession such a unique and wonderful profession and vocation is that it's ever changing. And so the journey is not linear. And the idea of getting there, you know, it's a recipe for disappointment to say, I'll be really happy with my work performance when I get there, right? When the company's secure, I'm going to feel great about the job <laughs> that I did. It is a journey. And, you know, zero trust is a journey. Even the, you know, thing, there are a lot of ambiguous concepts like cloud security, or what about security training and awareness? These are all journeys there. You know, you determine where you're at a particular point in time. You try and get better over time and more effective over time. And by the way, behind you in the journey, the bad guys are chasing you, right? So, you know, you have an incentive to keep going, right? It's not a, a meandering slow walk in our uh, profession. It's definitely a, a high-speed journey, but a journey nonetheless. <laughs> yeah, we're never done, are we? <laughs> no right. matter what we do. We're going to get through zero trust, and in five more years, there's going to be something, I don't know, biometric-only right. trust, or I don't know, trying to think of what the next right. trend is going to be as a whole. But yeah, always a constant battle, no matter what, for sure. So, JR, once again, appreciate you coming on board. So one final question that we like to ask in general you know, if you had to point to someone to one or two key resources to get started, what would you like to throw out to people to kind of poke and prod for the whole zero trust journey? Yeah, here's kind of an odd one, but I would say start with, as a security practitioner, start with the leaders of your business and understand what is the single most important thing to that business that you as a cybersecurity practitioner need to protect. Uh, and it's amazing to me how many cyber practitioners have never really walked into, a, you know, a product owner or a VP level or a C-level individual and said, I'm here from security. Would you just spend five minutes with me and talk about what it is that I need to protect in this business? And I think that opens itself up to so many subsequent 
learnings and conversations around, you know, where in the journey towards zero trust do I go? Where do I start? What things do I need to be thinking about? And so I think that the number one resource is often that office down in the corner uh, that we, you know, we tend to stay away from. And it can be a wealth of information that guides some of the things that we go into further. And then, of course, there's all the learnings. There are all the learnings about, you know, okay, how do I get smart on a particular tack and whatnot? And there innumerable resources out there for that, but it all kind of begins and ends with, uh, as a practitioner, what is it I'm trying to protect? I think that that's really the first place. Oh my God. I wish I would have been here sooner to have more fun. That, that I'm an Intel analyst. So you just hit that nose on the head for me. Start with <laughs> business risk requirements in a roundabout way, figure yeah. out what those are and go backwards from there. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Well, JR, it's been absolutely a pleasure to chat with you. Love the insights that you were able to provide. I'll give a little bit of shout out. So if folks go over to JR's LinkedIn profile, you'll dig back a little bit and see that threat report that they put out. I don't know if y'all put it out quarterly, but I think it's pretty interesting as a resource. That said, again, thank you so much for joining us. We love chatting with folks like yourselves who have just an immense amount of visibility into our space. Well, thank you both. And please keep up the great work. Fantastic podcast. We really appreciate you having it. Thank you for joining AZT, an independent series. Your hosts have been Elliot Volkman and Neil Dennis. To learn more about Zero Trust, go to adoptingzerotrust.com. Subscribe to our newsletter or join our Slack community. Viewpoints expressed during the show do not reflect the brands, employers, or companies of our hosts, guests, or potential sponsors.